Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. Today we are joined by a Tony-winning Broadway actor, an Emmy-winning television actor, a noted film actor, an author, and a director, all in the person of six-foot-four John Lithgow. I'm also 6'4", so we see eye to eye. Uh, what a relief. <laughs> and a, I can add nothing to this we conversation. Just have to, we have to ignore Let's start Howard. talking about his work. <laughs> the, the, the major difference is that I'm not as debonair as you. And when uh, Dirty Rotten Scandals opens, the big opening production of a bunch of people dancing and running around the stage, and suddenly, on cue, voila, there you are, mm-hmm. center stage in a white dinner jacket, yes. looking so suave and debonair. Yep. How do you pull that off, looking so suave and debonair? I don't have to do a thing. It was all uh, a moment created. Created for me by Jerry Mitchell and Jack O'Brien. Uh, I just turn around, look at the audience very smugly, and raise one eyebrow. Well, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels opened on Broadway on March 3rd. It's been playing in preview since the end of uh, January. But you've been involved with it for a long time, since about a year ago in San Diego. I yeah, we, we began rehearsing end of July uh-huh. last year and ran it for about two and a half months at the Old Globe, which is Jack's Theater. Uh-huh. And uh, then we had this nice little hiatus period between November 7th and resuming rehearsals on January 3rd, where it sort of lay fallow. They they did their work on it. There was a lot of rewriting and reconceiving while I just had Thanksgiving and Christmas. And Dirty Rotten Scandals, of course, is a story of two con men on the Riviera trying to mm-hmm. swindle rich ladies out of their money. Yes. You and Norbert Leo Butts are the two scoundrels in question. Yes. Mm-hmm. Norbert is... Uh, <laughs> He's an amazing force of nature. We just have this uh, hilarious time. Uh, I feel like Abbott, Abbott and Costello or something. Or, or Dean just, Martin and Jerry Lewis. Yeah, you, we, the, the suave Dean Martin and him, right. the slapstick Jerry Actually, Lewis. that's the closest paradigm, really. He's he's just a wild man. <laughs> and we have a ball together. It's just as, as wild as it is, as nutty as it is, it's, it's very rooted in reality, too. I mean, uh, he's... He's this eager protege who then tries to compete with and defeat his teacher. And it's just a great comedy premise. Well, I've seen the show twice now, mm-hmm. and I have this feeling. My wife has the same feeling, and a lot of people I've spoken to have said the same thing, that you guys seem to be up there on stage having so much fun, like oh, you're really enjoying oh, yourself. It's, it's delirious fun. Uh, I, I love this guy, too. I, I mean, it's just so much fun working with him. He's as wild as he is. He's completely reliable and mm-hmm. professional. He's a very, very expert clown. The two of us are similar in that we're very meticulous. Uh, we've changed lines within the last two or three weeks, hmm. long after the opening, because they just weren't quite hitting. You know, it's a, it's a whole company of people uh-huh. who are uh, perfectionists and uh, craftspeople when it comes to comedy. That's kind of unusual, isn't it, to be changing lines after the opening? Uh, I've never heard of it. <laughs> but, <laughs> the but question I, is, have the, has the book writer heard of it? No, no, I always run it by <laughs> everybody. But, you know, it's just, it's, there are interest, interesting instances where a really good joke is compromised by a joke that's not quite working like five seconds before. And, you know, you just try it differently one night and you realize it's so much better. So you kind of fine-tune it. Yeah. I'm curious – you have an extensive stage career, and we'll spend some time talking about that. But uh, it's really just in the past couple of years that you've been reinvented as a singer and now a real song and dance man. There wasn't, mm-hmm. there is some opportunity in Sweet Smell of Success, and here even more. 
how did you get yourself together to suddenly become a, a musical comedy performer after well, uh, a Shakespearean upbringing? Actually, reinvent is is my favorite word. I, I mean, I think it's uh, rightly or wrongly I've decided to reinvent myself regularly because I think that's how you keep yourself interested and uh, you keep you extend the length of your career and you make yourself surprising to the audience uh, over time. In fact, I had done a lot of musical theater around college age. I had done a lot of Gilbert and Sullivan and uh, I did a whole summer of light opera in summer stock, Offenbach and Lehar. Uh, and I used to sing English music hall songs. I had my own little uh, repertoire of uh, – of those charming, wacky songs, all of it college age, you get into the professional theater and you basically abandon that because there are real experts. There are the people in the music theater who sing and dance brilliantly and uh, put you to shame. And, and I was doing perfectly well in legitimate theater. Uh, Sweet Smell of Success came along when John Guare gave me a phone call. They needed for the role of J.J., someone who could sing, but it's, it was almost like the acting chops had to be even stronger than the musical theater chops. And this was at the end of a six-year run on Third Rock from the Sun. I thought this was the perfect thing to do, do after a sitcom, go back to Broadway and do something completely different and really challenge myself. That is the brief history of that decision. So, but in the preparation for really doing a straight-on musical comedy, the, the the dance work, the vocal work, is that is that stuff you really had to prep for? I mean, could you put yourself in the hands of two choreographers, Chris Wielden yeah. on um, on Sweet Smell, and then of course the great Jerry Mitchell? Yeah, um, these are these are guys who yes got but, great uh, steps. Well, they but they are very good at taking what you can offer. Jerry in particular, who Chris is a brilliant ballet choreographer. Jerry is a great show choreographer and he sort of took what I had and challenged me, had me doing way more than I thought I was capable of. And the same true in the vocal area. I mean, I don't kid myself. I'm still not the greatest uh, music theater singer or dancer, but I... I, I am an actor. I can pretend to be anything. <laughs> you know, <laughs> as we said, you seem to be having a good time with it. That is for sure. I have, I have exuberance and doggedness on my side. Well, we've seen you in a number of different roles now: musical comedy, certainly comedy with Third Rock from the Sun. We've seen you in some serious work like Kinsey, the, the movie just recently, uh, many many years ago, The World According to Garp. What kind of adjectives would you use to describe yourself? In other words, the real person, not the actor. What, what do you like as a, as, a, as, a, as a person? Well, I think as a person, I'm 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 a pretty uh, low profile uh, kind of uh, reticent person, really. Mm. I, I mean, I, I honestly feel like a, a schizophrenic. I, I get on stage <laughs> and I'm I'm a very extravagant. I mean, I'm an exuberant, uh, not to say excessive actor. Uh, but I'm, you know, people somehow expect me to be that way in real life, and I'm not. I, I live my life as inconspicuously as I can. Is this kind of then therapy for you, playing out all these different roles? Who knows? <laughs> uh, uh, I I do think of it as my occupation, what I do. I mean, I grew up in, in a theater family, and I do have a sort of pragmatic view of it. Um, 
that I know I know what my cues are. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I know I know when to start acting and, and, when, and when to stop. And you can hit your mark right when you're supposed to. Yeah. <laughs> you you mentioned growing up in a theater family, and I'm not sure how many people know. Your dad, your dad ran the McCarter Theater for a time in Princeton, and then ran a series of Shakespeare festivals, yes. mostly in the Midwest. Yeah, in Ohio. The, in the, Ohio the festivals preceded uh, McCarter. I had it backwards. Okay, yeah. but what was that household? Was was your mom also a performer? Was the... well, she had started out doing some acting, but she she it was in the good 1950s mold. She was the the homemaker. In her case, being a homemaker was uh, an enormous challenge because we had about ten different homes while I was growing up. It was a gypsy wagon. Uh, you and know, your my, dad put you on stage pretty early. Yeah, he. It was just the thing to do. I, I hung around. My dad's early festivals were outdoor festivals at Antioch College in Yellow Springs and Akron Shakespeare. Akron Shakespeare. In the summertime, I would just hang around and watch the actors rehearse, uh, do odd jobs. Uh, they put I, I played Mustard Seed and The Prince in the Tower. And uh, by the time I was a teenager, I was an apprentice building props and stitching costumes and playing little roles. Uh, but not not ever thinking that I would end up an actor. It was just the, the sort of fun thing to do. Did you ever consider anything other than theater? Painting. I, I was a very serious artist, uh -huh. art student when I was a kid, uh, pretty much up until the time I went to college, at which point I fell in with the theater gang, and that was the end of that. But always something in the arts. Yes. I, I really could never imagine doing anything but that. Uh -huh. There was a period when I thought I should be an industrial designer. <laughs> but that's just because I used to go watercolor painting with this industrial designer in Yellow Springs, Ohio, who was a hobbyist. Uh -huh. And I thought, oh, well, that's what I'll be when I grow up. That's when I was about 10. Well, your father certainly being in the theater business, did your mother ever worry and say, you should have something good to fall back on just in case this acting thing or painting thing doesn't work out? They, I do remember one occasion, you know, early in my senior year at Harvard when I informed my mom and dad that I was auditioning for a Fulbright grant to go to London to study acting in earnest – with a view to being an actor. I, I'll never forget the the expression on my father's face. It just fell. <laughs> it was like, oh, no. <laughs> I mean, that's the only good thing about growing up in a theater family and then going into the profession. You know how hard it is. You know what you're up against. And you know the rules of the game. He knew what I was in for. But then so did I. So what, what what was your first paycheck? Do you recall? Oh, he employed me first. Okay, uh, and I think I did. I did a summer as a lighting technician for his Akron Shakespeare Festival, uh -huh. and I think I earned about seventy dollars a week mm -hmm. and ran the light board. And I probably thought, I thought pretty, that was damn good. Pretty money. decent money for a kid in those yes, days, yeah, yeah, in the fifties, early sixties. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and he also gave me my first equity job after. The four years of Harvard and the two years in London were over with. So what was the first job your father didn't give you that somebody else gave you? Uh, I worked a season at Long Wharf Theater for Arvin Brown in 72. Um, and it was an extraordinary season. Oh, it was a great because season. Because The Changing Room came out of there that yeah. year. And was Spoke Song right around the same time? Spoke Song 
I did. No, that uh, was later. It was later. later. You're right. Changing Room was the second show I did at Long Wharf in a season of roles that I'd been given. And that came into town intact. And that was my first Broadway show and my first Tony Award. So, yeah, that that was quite a year. In succeeding years, I came into town with Spoke Song and also Requiem for Heavyweight straight from Long Wharf. Uh, and that was – those were three of many shows that used to come in from Long Wharf. There was quite a conduit. Yeah. That was early 70s. Here we are in 2005, 30 some odd years later mm-hmm. and you're starring on Broadway yeah. in the Imperial Theater. I've got to mention the theater's name. Yes, indeed. <laughs> in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Now, the cast album – uh-huh. The Dirty Rotten Scandals was just recorded a couple weeks ago. Yes. And it's hitting record stores everywhere, I'm told, that on or about May 10th. Uh-huh. You know more than I do. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, on or about right. May 10th, unless that date changes. That's what yeah. it's uh, currently projected at. But we managed to get an advanced copy of oh, it, good. so we have a song to play. This will be the uh, first I'm hearing it. <laughs> well, <laughs> there are a lot of good songs in the show, but the one that kind of really – sums up the show comes you know, right at the very close. It's called The Dirty Rotten Number. I guess mm-hmm. they couldn't think of any better name yeah. for it. Is that- yeah. yeah, that's Norbert's and my big duet. Uh, and it's, of course, the creation of David Yazbek, our composer-lyricist. But it was at the strenuous bidding of Jack O'Brien. He said, this show needs to end with a big number between these two guys. Everybody's waiting for it. And Yazbek... Uh, uh, I don't think I'm breaking any confidence. He wanted nothing to do with it. He mm. he felt he'd done his writing. He was exhausted. Now, I, I, Jack I, I, just beat him up and finally forced him to write it, and it became his favorite number. Now, I, I, at what point in the process did Jack say he needed the song? Was this when you were in rehearsal? He was or? saying it all along, uh-huh. but Yazbek was dragging his feet. He finally finished the song about two weeks before we opened in San Diego. It was uh, a very much a last-minute uh, thing. We We had a nice little scene there. A nice little dialogue scene that was ending the evening on a very kind of melancholy and mute, muted moment. Uh-huh. And Jack said, no, we got to go out with a bang. Well, do we ever go out with a bang? I mean, yeah. it's just a tremendous uh, no-holds-barred number which sort of looks back just with joy on everything that's gone before. At the end of the show, Dirty Rotten Scandals, that's the big number that kind of sums things up. The Dirty, Mm -hmm. Rotten Number. Norbert Leo Butson, of course, today's guest, John Lithgow, who plays Lawrence Jameson. Now, the first time you saw the script, how did you consider the part? What what kind of thoughts did you have about how to interpret the character, how to play him? Well, it's an interesting tale. I I was doing Retreat from Moscow on Broadway at the time, and I was invited to come to see a workshop of Dirty, Rotten Scoundrels by Marty Bell, our producer, And I knew some of the people involved, and I thought, well, sure. And I went to see it just out of friendship, and I was curious to be in on the very beginning of something. Never the slightest idea that I'd be in this. You weren't even thinking about it? No, nor were they. Uh Uh, Brian Stokes Mitchell was playing Lawrence and doing a wonderful job. Norbert was in it, and Joanna was in it, and Sherry Renee. Joanna Gleason, Sherry Renee Scott. exactly. And it was a lot of fun, but it was only about half done and and, and a bit half baked. But it was del- delightful, and you could tell it was going to be terrific. And did you know the source material, which most people are familiar with the recent movie, of course, mm-hmm. with Michael Caine and Steve Martin, yeah. but did you also know Bedtime Story? No. In fact, I didn't even know it existed at that point. Uh, but I did know the the Martin Caine version very well. Uh, and I just thought it was delightful. And I could see its 
great material for a, a musical, even without half its songs. So Marty called me and said, what do you, th- what do you say? Will you do it? Because Stokes was hired to do a television show at that point uh-huh. could, and couldn't do it, had to pull out. And it, uh, I, I hadn't intended to come back to Broadway again quite so quickly, but I said yes. I mean – uh, been, it's been three years, three successive years. You've yeah, been in three, it's, it's really remarkable track yeah. record and, of, of incredibly diverse parts. Yeah, and you throw in Mrs. Farnsworth, my, of course, my little off Broadway uh, piece with uh, of the the terrific Gurney play that I did with Sigourney Weaver. So I've done four shows in three years after a fourteen year period away. You've not been on stage anywhere not, in fourteen. Well, years? I'd done a Virginia Woolf in L.A. with Glenda Jackson in nineteen ninety. And I had done Third Rock, which I insist is theater. (laughs) But no, I had not been back to New York, to Broadway. And it was interesting to come back because you go away for that long and you come back and you suddenly realize how quickly the generations change among New York actors. It's like I didn't know anybody. Hmm. I felt like – the the grizzled old veteran returning was, to was, the stage. Was part of that also a byproduct of the fact that you came back first into a musical and you hadn't yes, been in the musical that's, world? That's a very good point. I, I mean the only musical stuff I had done in New York in my heyday, the 70s, when I was really going from show to show for about 12 years, was the Millican show in the early 70s, the big uh, fabric, uh, the synthetic big fabric show. industrial at the Waldorf Astoria. Which back in the, everybody in the music theater knows all about the Millican show. You, they have the best musical theater people in working in in New York. All of them selling synthetic fabrics at eight a.m. at the Waldorf, <laughs> and I was but getting ca- paid nicely. For there you go, it. getting paid gloriously. To be and, up at eight a.m. Yeah, you must be getting paid. And then you do your show at night. Sure. And uh, I had done that, but that was it. I had never cross pollinated with the uh, with the music theater gang. And well, it is fantastic. I mean, they are the most marvelous people to work with. There's something so exuberant and passionate and positive about uh, New York theater, musical theater people. Well, what you came back into, Sweet Smell, was not a conventional musical comedy. And and I've read a little of you talking now about your perspective on the show because it really was a very dark piece. Mm-hmm. And – how how did you feel about how do you feel about that show in retrospect and how did it work for you because it was it was a tough piece of theater yes but of course that's what attracted me to it i mean I think it's what attracted all those marvelous people as i said john guare is the one who contacted me nick heitner i'd always wanted to work with marvin hamlish craig carnelia and chris wielden i mean it was a terrific lineup of people and i I loved the audacity of doing such a dark piece as a musical. Uh, and in retrospect, you know, looking back on it, I, I loved the show and I loved the experience. I thought it was a marvelous show. In retrospect, it's not hard to figure out why it didn't work as a hit Broadway musical. That's just not what hit Broadway musicals are made out of. Uh, it was a very disturbing evening. I, I had a a smart friend, not in the theater, but a man with great taste and, you know, tolerance for all sorts of things. I went out to supper with him after he'd seen Sweet Smell of Success and he shook his head 
looked down into his plate and said, why did you do that to me? <laughs> you know? I mean, it, it was a troubling, disturbing evening. It's a play about two men, just like Scoundrels is, who are have a very combative mentor-protege relationship. Um, but they begin to feud with each other, betray each other. Well, at the end of this one, one of them murders the other or has him murdered. And you and the audience is just left feeling like they've been punched in the gut. This is the stuff of terrific theater, but not smash hit Broadway musical comedy. <laughs> but it is interesting that you've been the, the older man in the pairing with the younger man, that the, the uh-huh. two shows do have those parallels. Though clearly you're in you know, the sunnier it, of the two now. It must be something that's happened. It must be something that happens to a character man when he approaches 60. I've done four shows in a row in which I basically co-starred with men in their 30s, Brian Darcy James in Sweet Smell, Danny Burstein in Mrs. Farnsworth, Ben Chaplin in Retreat from Moscow, and now Norbert. Marvelous actors, just marvelous. We've we've been such good friends in each case. It's been a kind of father-son dynamic in each case, mentor-protege dynamic. What's interesting about Sweet Smell, by the way, you won your second Tony for that show. You had won a Tony about three decades earlier for The Changing Room. So nice of you, John, to slip that in. (laughs) Got got to mention that because you're you're, you're too nice to mention it about yourself. Uh, That show, Sweet Smell Success, as you pointed out, the music, the score was written by Marvin Hamlish. Mm -hmm. Marvin told me he considered that to be about his best work. He was Mm -hmm. like really thrilled with the score he had done. He was so disappointed that ultimately the show didn't work. He was devastated. I mean we all were. Mm -hmm. Uh, but we – I still look back on it as a joyous experience. Um, I, I put in a year. Those guys put in five and six years. It's much, much harder on them. Well, it seems an appropriate moment then to play a song from Sweet Smell of Success. So we played really the the, the big final number from Scoundrels. So let's hear – why don't we hear the column, the big opening number from Sweet Smell of Success. Great. From Sweet Smell of Success, the column, John Lithgow, our guest today, of course, starring in Sweet Smell in the 2002 season, currently starring in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels at the Imperial Theater here in New York, John Lithgow. Tell us about working in theater versus film, television, whatever. Do you have any preference for one medium versus another? Because you're so versatile in all three of them. Well, I I do. It's nice of you to say that I'm versatile in all three of them. I do think my strong suit is theater. Uh, I think... My successes in TV and radio have been to the extent that I've been able to use my theater chops in those non-theater media. Uh, the things are acting is fun, period. But and there are things that are more fun about each of these three things. But basically, when you're acting on stage, it's a, it goes to the very heart of acting. You're there with your audience. You live the story right in front of them. You experience it just the way they do in a way. And movies are very abstract. Uh, You do your best, but ultimately you don't even know how your own material is going to play because it's going to be edited by other people. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is going to be cut out. A lot of your pauses are going to be cut out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's up to other people to control the rhythms and the the beats of your performance. Uh, so, you know, you, you, you sort of – it's like you're an art collector. When you when you see a movie you're in, you have a sort of 
appreciation at one remove. Instead of being the, the, the there at the creation, you're, you're sort of looking looking at your own work as if you're looking at your art collection. It's got to be kind of interesting for you the first time you see the finished cut of the movie because they've changed it yeah. probably from what, what you intended it to be. Sometimes you're delighted and sometimes yeah. you're appalled. Yeah. Uh, but one way or the other, it's not your own doing. Yeah. Uh, this is a long way of saying uh, it, it's just a very different medium. It's also much more tedious, the actual doing of it. You keep wanting to get your rocks off. Oh, a lot of waiting between takes yeah. and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, earlier you described Third Rock as theater. Mm -hmm. And many, quote, unquote, serious theater people, actors, wouldn't consider a sitcom to be theater. Well, then they've probably never been on one. <laughs> I mean, I've Third Rock. From a lot of people. Yeah, Third, they... Third Rock also was a rare and wonderful case. Uh, I mean, we. That was a beautifully run operation. It was a, a show with a kind of extraordinary uh, high concept. It was flat out, very theatrical farce with some extremely expert writers. People don't even know how brilliant the writing was because it was so zany. But it was – and we had the director for virtually every – the same director, Terry Hughes, doing almost all the episodes. So there was a kind of uh, – it was it was very – and we were performing for an audience and we would spend a week preparing. It was a point of honor with us to give them the most polished show we possibly could. It was just like the theater experience. Well, with television, you have an interesting – you talk about the paradigm of film acting where it's all pieces and somebody else cuts it up and decides how you look. With television – you create a character at the beginning of the run of a series and then every week they throw a new script at you and you have to work that – continue through with that character. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a different model than the others yes. because there's endless new material for you to explore. Yeah. Now, Third Rock, it's not Chekhov. So yeah. you don't necessarily plumb the, the same emotional depths. But, but yeah. you did go through 100 and probably 20-some-odd episodes with yeah. that character in different scenarios. Yeah. I mean the, the, the delightful thing about it was you know, we were all aliens uh, ready, willing and able to take on any uh, human behaviors. It was sort of you – know, a trial and error process of figuring out how to be human. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, in, in a sense, my character was a chameleon. He would try all sorts of things. You think back on Third Rock episodes and I played in crazy accents and it, it was like a variety show and yet it had this wonderfully coherent, uh, uh, although lunatic, premise. And, of course, you could be as creative as you wanted to be because an alien, who knows what an alien yeah, is really like, so exactly. you can do whatever you wanted to be. All bets were off. I mean, <laughs> and I, I was partnered with Jane Curtin, thank God, because she sort of she sort of rooted, it, rooted my character in some kind of reality. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was really fun. Now, you glancingly mentioned earlier, and I want to come back to the other two stage roles that you've done most recently in New York because you have the big – musical and the scale of those musicals and then you had Retreat from Moscow, a three-character, very intimate, very serious play and then as well, Mrs. Farnsworth. How does the working in those different scales work for you and the, again, those different moods? It's it's such variety. Yeah, it's, it, the variety is what I liked about it. Um, Retreat from Moscow was 
It was a very melancholy play. Of course, it was a play about middle-aged people getting divorced and how their 30-year-old son handles it. I mean, this is not the stuff of comedy. But I was working with Eileen Atkins and Ben Chaplin. We were uh, a wonderful threesome. We had a, a ball doing it together. Um, Dan Sullivan directed it, who's an impeccable director of actors. Uh, and it was close to my experience. It was close to a lot of people's experience. I had a first marriage fail with a with a son who by at that point was 30 years old, although the marriage ended when he was only seven. I was just very connected to the material. It moved me very deeply and I think it, it touched a lot of people. Uh, but it was – I mean I, I – more consciously than unconsciously, I do try to take roles that are as different as possible from whatever I just did. And then you veered off of that into Mrs. Farnsworth, yeah. which was an atypical piece of political comedy mm -hmm. from A.R. Gurney. Yeah. It, that just sort of uh, – it arrived at the stage door, uh, I think hand-delivered by Sigourney Weaver. Mm -hmm. And I read it and loved it immediately. It was the most delightful read and it also had a terrific political kick. And the fact that it was a play that really had to be performed in the period, say, six, three to six months prior to a presidential election featuring George Bush. <laughs> and indeed, indeed performed during the Republican convention yes, here in the U.S. I mean, it, was, it just seemed marvelous to me. And it was also quite simple. It was almost a, a piece of sketch material, although it was a, a beautifully written play. I closed Retreat from Moscow and started performing Mrs. Farnsworth two weeks later hmm. downtown. Oh. And, uh, you know, it was at the Flea Theater, which is a, a, a terrific uh, energetic place where they do such, such interesting committed work. I also loved the, the, the premise that it took place in a classroom and the audience quickly realizes that they are the students and all this direct address to the students and, and playing with reality that way. And I liked going into a 77-seat house from a 1,200-seat Broadway theater. It's a very intimate little th – the, the flea, very yeah. intimate, very close to the audience. To the yeah, actors. and they had it tricked up to appear like a, an NYU classroom. I mean, it, it was just per perfect. And they had planted a couple of the cast members in the audience, yeah. unbeknownst to the audience ahead of time, yes, who would then pop great. up from their seats and – yeah. Exchange dialogue with you, the the teacher. Yeah, and in the midst of all of this, you made your ballet debut. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> as, as, we, as we're trying to cover all of the facets of your work in, in the limited time allotted. Tell us about how that came to be. Well, that was through the good graces of Chris Wielden, who had choreographed "Sweet Smell of Success," and Chris is he is the the hot young prodigy among international ballet choreographers. He's the resident choreographer for New York City Ballet. And he knew my children's books quite well and just telephoned me a couple of months after Sweet Smell ended and said, I'm already scheduled to do a new ballet of Saint-Saëns' Carnival of the Animals for City Ballet next spring. Would you help me turn that musical piece into a story, write a narration and be the narrator. And of course, I said yes immediately. What could be more fun than working with a ballet company? 
And together we came up with the story of a little boy locked overnight in the Natural History Museum who dreams that everybody he knows is an animal. Chris had wanted the dancers to be people, not animals, so we came up with this uh, sort of animal-human hybrid concept. And I wrote the whole thing. He was delighted. I, uh, I would send him stanzas by email. He was all over the world choreographing here and there, and I, he, he would open them up like little Christmas presents. Here's a new character. Well, one of the characters was Mabel Bunce, the school nurse, who was the elephant. And he he floored me once it was all written by asking me to play that part, mm-hmm. to not only be the narrator but to change into a, into drag, into heavy padding in a ballroom gown mm-hmm. and play Mabel Bunce at the Elephant Ball. And once again, I couldn't say yes fast enough. Who's going to say no to the chance of dancing with the New York City Ballet without having spent his entire life taking ballet classes? <laughs> well, you, you've written a number of children's books with accompanying CDs, mm-hmm. and uh, we play a couple of your songs on, on this station, on the Broadway station, like Triplets, for example. Uh-huh. We play quite, oh, great. quite regularly. Delighted. Uh, there's one song that has a fascinating title, uh-huh. the GNU song. Yes. <laughs> this is one of a couple of songs that I've recorded by Flanders and Swan, the great review artists from the 1950s uh, in England at the drop of a hat. And the GNU song just lends itself to an, an album of songs for kids. Singing in the Bathtub, the name of the album, as I yeah, recall. Yeah, that's right. And uh, the, the GNU song was one of many of their songs that I loved when I was a kid, so I figured, why not? The GNU song with a hard G, GNU song. John <laughs> Lithgow, of course, from Singing in the Bathtub, your CD. What have you not done that you would like to do, career-wise? Um... You know, I, I, I've ticked off most of the things that I've wanted to do. Uh-huh. I've, I've now sung with several major symphony orchestras. I've sung four times at Carnegie Hall. I mean, I've done things that I never dreamed I would do. Uh-huh. never occurred to me that I would dance with a, a major ballet, ballet company. company right? I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I don't calculate. To me, the future is unforeseeable. Uh, I seem to have been the subject of a lot of other people's brainstorms. Uh-huh. And I've done well by that. So I'll leave that up to other people. <laughs> how, how, how about the, the painting you had talked about earlier? Ah, yeah, that would be nice. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I have always nursed the fantasy of just taking a year off and painting. And I sort of owe that to myself. Go to the south of France or Italy or something and paint? Or or? Montana. 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 My wife's from Montana. Uh, we spend a lot of time up there. Um, and... I really should do that. The, the problem is people keep giving me irresistible job offers. <laughs> they make you an offer you can't refuse. That's right. Like be a scoundrel. <laughs> yes. But with all the audiences that you have, I mean, there are, there are the 40-plus-year-old middle-aged guys like me who go, gosh, he was in Buckaroo Banzai. <laughs> of course, there are the theater star people who've seen you, you know, in countless shows. The experience of doing all of this work you're doing now for kids, mm-hmm. which you really began once your kids were older. It wasn't yeah. that you were doing it for them and said, oh, I sing to them at home. Let me go do an album of this. What What is that audience like? Because I've seen you out reading and uh-huh. singing directly for the kids in sometimes intimate settings. They are a fantastic audience. I, I, I do it for the kids, but I do do it for myself too. It is – I wouldn't do it if it weren't incredible fun. Uh, I mean, basically, your challenge as, a, as an actor is to captivate 
delight and hold the attention of an audience. You know, holding the attention of little kids for an hour is, first of all, you're, you're extremely pleased with yourself because it's a very difficult thing to do. But they are also so unedited. Their responses are so glorious. It's so sure. easy. Well, they don't sure. say, oh, he's got two Tonys. Yeah, no, they have no idea who I am. I have to win them over. Uh, they... And they're also <laughs> incredibly easy to fool. I mean, the essence of acting is fooling people into believing, uh, suspending their disbelief. Well, it's just marvelous with kids. Uh, I do stupid gags for them like uh, I wear a top hat for my first number and I forget to take it off. And then I say, oh, dear, I always do this. I put the hat on. I sing the number. I forget to take it off. If that happens again in the concert, be sure to tell me, won't you? <laughs> well, I proceed to wear seven or eight hats, and I always forget to take them off. And they scream at me, take off your hat, take off your hat. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it, they're both so easy to fool and impossible to fool. You, you know, you've got to keep their – You've got to keep them delighted at every single moment. It's it's just a terrific challenge. Then it's also – it's very nice to do something that you think is good and necessary. Kids need to be served. Remember, kids are people too. Yeah. It's, it's just – I've heard that somewhere. It's just kind of the inner child in you coming out then. Uh, having, well, back, having fun. One of my favorite quotes, there's a great uh, late uh, children's book editor – named Ursula Nordstrom. She was really the great one, the one who discovered Maurice Sendak and just so many other people. And she was asked what her secret was and, and her comment was, I was a child once myself and I haven't forgotten a thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, we've been chatting with Lawrence Jameson, same initials as John Lithgow but reversed. Mm, that's How astute of me to notice that's that. That's why I took the role, of course. <laughs> you can use the same monogram. <laughs> yes. Just look in the mirror and reverse it. Currently starring as Lawrence Jameson in Dirty Rotten Scoundrel at the Imperial Theater. John Lithgow, thanks very much for being with Real us today on Downstage pleasure. Center. Great to talk to you guys. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding all of our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media programs of the American Theater Wing are available free on demand from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you. <laughs>